Exodus chapter 4. I hope you all know, and I'd like you to know, if I can just speak personally for a second. I, I know you're here to hear the word, and to, to study, and to, to draw closer to the Father, and to know these things. Um, but you just need to know that it's a blessing to me, personally, that you're here. Um, I didn't think we were going to have to brave another winter in the barn. But the fact that you're here, and you've got your blankets and your Bibles, that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> It really does. It's really encouraging. And I know it's encouraging for each of us one to another to be here together. So thank you for being here tonight and taking this time. Exodus chapter 4. Where we'll be going tonight, Exodus 4, as we move through the second book of the Bible. Now, last week we began talking about looking at the call of Moses. And I gave you a basic outline to follow. And that outline is as follows. It's a five-part outline, and we looked at the circumstances of the call. That was Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The circumstances of the call, that that blazing bush that appeared to Moses and drew him in, and, and God spoke to him through that fire and through that bush. And secondly, not only the circumstances of the call, but the compassion of the Lord, Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. When we discover, we realize, and Moses recognizes that God has actually visited his people and sees their distress. That he is a compassionate, loving God. That he has not forgotten his people Israel, to whom he had made promise. The third part of the outline was the confidence of the name. Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. The confidence of the name. Where God says to Moses, I am that I am. Or I am who I am. That's the name. That's the place you put your confidence. Not in yourself, Moses. Not in your abilities. Not in tricks or anything else. You put your confidence in my name. I am who I am. Number four on the, out- number four on the outline is the commission of Moses. The commission, Exodus 3, 16 through 22, where God begins to give him tools to use effectively in ministry. We looked at several of those tools, by the way, on Sunday morning as well. When we come to part five of this call of Moses outline, if you're using this to help you with notes and just following along, part five I would call the consternation of the Lord. The consternation of the Lord because Moses pushes it just a bit too far. His doubts become disbelief. And at that point, God, you will see, gets angry. Well, that's Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, the consternation of the Lord. Now, as we opened Exodus chapter 4 on Sunday, we saw Moses continuing to argue God's call for him to be the deliverer of Israel. And so in the first nine verses, God gave Moses three signs that I'd like to kind of reframe with three questions. The three signs where you may may remember, number one, the hand, what was in his hand? That's the first question. What's in your hand? Moses was carrying the staff. The first time where he threw the staff down, it became the snake. And Moses fled before the snake. Ran away. It scared him. It's interesting to me that the second sign that God gave Moses was a leprous hand. That he placed over his heart. He put it over his bosom. And when he pulled it back out, it was covered with leprosy. Problem is, at that point, Moses could not run. You cannot run from sin. You cannot hide from sin. He could have tried to put it over here somewhere, but eventually he would come back to this hand, this leprous hand. And so God said, put it back into your shirt. He puts it back in, pulls it out, and it's clean again. Numbers 32.23 tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot hide from your sin. You can't get away from it. And yet we have a Redeemer who can do something with our sin that none of us could have imagined. 
He can take it away from us as far as the east is from the west. The Bible tells us He takes our sins and puts them in a bottle and dumps them into the deepest part of the sea to places where they cannot return. That's forgiveness. That's redemption. Well, the third tool or sign that God gave Moses was blood. Take water out of the Nile, you recall that, and pour it on the ground. Just in a little vase there. Later, the entire Nile will become bloody. But for the people of Israel, God says, Hey, Moses, just take some of the water and pour it out. It will become blood. What's the point? The point is the water that they believe sustains them is truly just leading them to death. And again, we talked about all these things on Sunday, and eventually there will be a CD available for you if you you miss that and want to study those things. But the bottom line is that we take what's in our hands, use it for ministry. We discover that we can use what we have for ministry because our hearts have been made clean before the Lord because of His blood. But Moses needs some further convincing to God's consternation. And that's where we pick up in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 4. Verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I'm not a smart guy, Lord. You want a deliverer, a spokesperson? Man, I'm not accomplished. I'm no public speaker. I've got no training. The problem is Stephen declares quite the opposite. Acts chapter 7 verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Best of the schools of the world at that time. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. Yes, he could speak. Now some have said, well Moses, maybe he had a stuttering problem or or a lisp or something. The Bible doesn't indicate that. What the Bible indicates is Moses is just scared. He just doesn't want to do what God is calling him to do. He's just making excuses And these excuses don't even hold water. They don't stack up. How will I know what to say? He said, I'm slow on my feet. Although, interesting, Moses seems to be doing pretty well here. In fact, ever since his meeting began with God, he's done very well staying sharp and quick on his feet. Coming up with this, that, and the other. All kinds of excuses. Trying to put God off. He's not having any problem being eloquent here. God says, Moses, come on. His response is a great reminder to us. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, in a thundering voice, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God answers Moses with questions, which God often does in the scriptures. Questions designed to refocus his thinking and his faith in the right direction. He reminds me of another man who needed a little questioning. Would you flip in your Bibles over to the book of Job, chapter 38, for a moment? Job 38, right before Psalms. Job 38, about midway through your Bibles. The book of Job is a fascinating book. It'll be fun when we get there to study that, to see what all is going on, the intricacies of the the arguments that are made throughout. But for 37 chapters in this book, Job and his friends try to figure out God. They try to understand unjust treatment that's happening on on the face of the earth. They try and get it and work it out. And they are all wrong with the exception of one of Job's friends. They all seem to miss the mark. And then finally, at the beginning of Job 38, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Who's the yapper? My translation. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Sarcasm is great. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line in it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From their wicked, from the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Love this line. Tell me, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has, who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on land without people, and a desert without a man in it, to satisfy waste and desolate land, to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are! And listen to this. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clouds stick together and he goes on and on on through chapter 39 asking question after question after question and let me encourage you if you're ever confused if you're ever wondering why these bad things are happening to you if you ever feel at a loss for words and you ever feel like shaking a fist at God would you do something for me before you do that read Job 38 and rediscover your place have you done these things? Back to Exodus chapter 4, God says to Moses, Moses, who made man's mouth? Are you the architect of the tongue? Are you the one who put it together? I've said this before, and it still just it cracks me up. It's a little personal joke of mine. The fact that a kid who was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate speaks for a living. This is what I do. It is a great cosmic joke of God that he says, no, that one. Yeah, the one with no upper lip. He's the one. I'm going to have do this. Who makes man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Much of our excuses in life are in reality just doubting God's ability to use us. We talked on Sunday quite a bit about being instruments of God's will. In fact, the last two weeks we talked about that. It's where the scripture took us. And the fact that as instruments of His will, all we have to do is submit ourselves to His will to be useful for Him. And the reason we don't is because we think we're not up to it. We think, well, we can't really be used. And it's like the hammer saying, the craftsman cannot use me. Of course he can. Of course he can. Romans chapter 9, verse 20, Paul says, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? This is something we forget in our land of American rights. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Doesn't God have that right, being our creator, to do whatever he wants with us? The fact that we have free will at all is amazing to me. Amazing. Well, God is redirecting Moses here to a fundamental question. And it's the last, what is it, six words of verse 11. Is it not I the Lord? The question is, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And Jesus will echo this most basic of questions, Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Romans 9, 5, Paul says Jesus is over all God, blessed forever. What have I to dread or fear? Death? Anybody here afraid of death? Anybody afraid of disease? How about other nations? A lot of dangerous rogue nations in the world today. Are you afraid of rulers or elected officials? (laughs) Are you afraid of terrorism? The pictures came out this week of Madrid. Did you see those on the news? Actual pictures of the bombs going off at one of the railway stations. Scary. Scary stuff. Are you afraid of that? Or worse, are you afraid of public speaking? Moses was. Moses said, don't get me up front. I'm not doing a communion meditation. You can forget that. Verse 12. Now go then, and I, even I, which is a word to circle there, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. By the way, listen to Jesus' words on the matter of speaking out for God. Jesus said in John 14:26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. We worry, well, if I bring up Jesus to someone, if I start to talk about God with somebody, what if I don't know how to answer their questions? What if I don't know the right thing to say? And Jesus says, hey, Spirit's with you. He will tell you what to say. And you may not even feel like you said the right thing. You may walk away going, man, I blew that opportunity. But if you just open your mouth with Jesus on your tongue, you've done the right thing. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, Do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I'm not looking for a Winston Churchill. I'm looking for a willing child. That's all God needs. By the way, this is what Paul asked for in the following prayer. He said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And, he says, listen to this, this is Paul talking, pray on my behalf. 
What for, Paul? That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is Paul. Right up there, the statue of a Moses. God, I'm not sure what to say. Give me the right words to speak. Paul says to the saints in the first century, pray for me so I'll know what to say. This is Paul. Well, Paul knew where the words came from. Well, verse 13. Moses, after all this, God says, it's me, so go, I'll be with your mouth. I got, I got you covered, Mo. I'm going to teach you what to say. He says, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. What's he saying? Send somebody else. Please, not me. Ultimately, God will send another deliverer, a, deliverer, a greater than Moses, Jesus. But right now, Moses is the deliverer. Moses is the one. And God gets angry with him. Because Moses, again, is no longer just doubting here. He is on the razor's edge between doubt and disobedience. Listen, doubt in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. If it drives you to obedience. Doubt is not bad if it sends you to the scriptures to understand more. But I'm not sure. I think God's asked me to do this. Let's see what the word has to say. I'm going to pray about this and give God opportunity to reveal it to me. That's good. Many people have doubted their way into belief, asking the tough questions. God's not afraid of those. But doubt becomes dangerous when it begins to teeter on disbelief, disobedience. When it enters the realm of rebellion. Folks, this is the place, by the way, of decision. That razor sharp edge between doubt and disobedience. All the questions are asked and answered. The debates are over. Everything's settling down. And now it comes time to cast your vote. (laughs) Now is the time to decide, are you going to do what God says or not? And that's where Moses is right here. He's he's given all of the debates. He's given all of the arguments against him going. God has remained firm and said, No, I want you to go. I want you to go. I want you to go. And finally in verse 13, Moses says, Please, just send somebody else. And now, now God gets angry. Why, you wonder, after all the signs and all of the words of God and the promises, why does Moses still waffle and waver? Wouldn't you think at this moment, and I've heard people say, and I've said before in my life, man, if I saw the Red Red Sea part, I don't know how, within, you know, a matter of months, I could be dancing around a golden calf. Those Israelites really blew it. They saw it. Man, if I stood before the burning bush and God said, you know, whoa, wouldn't you just, whatever you want me to do, Lord, just tell me I'll go. Don't forget, Moses is a real guy, just like us. And don't miss this either. Though we believe without seeing, we have so much that God gives us in the way of of convincing us. In the way of confidence. And yet we still, like Moses, waffle and waver. Why is it? I believe in Moses' case it's because life has set in. Life has set in. He's 80 years old. Forty years earlier, Moses was indignant at the treatment of the Hebrews by the Egyptians. Forty years earlier, he was frustrated with it. To the point that he killed an Egyptian for it. He's looking around, he's seeing the injustice, and he sees an Egyptian mistreating Hebrew. So he goes after him and he kills him. Moses is angry and he's ready to fight for his own. But now, now at age 80, life didn't really turn out the way he thought it was supposed to. And I wonder with you, and I look at my own life at times and wonder, is this the way I thought it was going to be? 
Last week or the week before, I don't recall, I, I made a comment that life with Jesus is like graduation day of high school. Remember me saying that? Every single day in Jesus, when we're focused on Jesus, it's like graduation day because the whole future is laid out before us. The problem is life begins to set in and knock us off track. Life begins to take our focus away from Jesus, and the more that happens, the more we just kind of settle back like Moses, and then when God does call, when God does challenge, we waffle and we waver. Why is it that people end up tired and worn out and bitter and bored? Because the real stuff of life sets in. And you know what? Life is hard. It is. For all of us. It's not a cakewalk for anybody, no matter how much they may hide it or dress it up. Life is hard. That's the deal. Get used to it. And it's going to be harder still. There will be things in coming years here, Lord willing, if we have more time to live, if He doesn't come back, there will be more tragedy. There will be more difficulty. There will be more disappointment. Life is hard. That's why we keep coming back to the coming of the Lord. Because that's our focus. Because no matter how difficult life gets, or on the other hand, no matter how good life gets, we have a direction, we have a focus, we have a place to go. Jesus coming keeps us on our toes. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, a familiar verse. The writer says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is key to keeping the hard stuff of life from settling in our bones. Focus on the coming of Jesus. He is coming back. And He is coming soon. And I've discovered in my own life personally, the more I think about His return, the stronger I am. The easier I can deal with the stuff of life. Because no matter how bad it gets, you know what? It doesn't matter that much. The more I think about my life, the harder it gets. Focus on Jesus. Well, verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. I believe there's some sarcasm in that. Because Moses speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. i got both your mouths covered here, Moses. And I will teach you what you are to do God is put out with this disinclined deliverer. However, he doesn't let Moses off the hook. Why? Why doesn't he just dump Moses and wait for Aaron to show up? Why even use Moses at all if he is so turned off? If he just keeps putting God off because God knows what he has gifted Moses to do. God knows how He has created Moses and He knows He has made this man for a purpose, for a reason and He knows what it is. And Romans 11.29 tells us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We may waffle all over the place but God does not change His mind or make mistakes when He calls and when He gives gifts to people. 
It's not a mistake. And his callings and his giftings are irrevocable. Now, the Lord, knowing how Moses would respond, has already called Aaron. He's already got Aaron on the way to meet Moses as this conversation is happening. But he goes on clearly here in verse 16 to delineate their roles so there will be no misunderstanding. Verse 16, Moreover, he, Aaron, shall speak for you, Moses, to the people. And he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Moses, all right. I'm going to send Aaron as a mouthpiece for you. You're so concerned about your speech. But listen, Moses, you're the boss. The buck stops here. As you are with me, so Aaron will be with you. You will be like God to Aaron. God doesn't leave any doubt here. Any room for misunderstanding. He makes it very clear what their roles are going to be. Why is that? Because Aaron is going to cause some problems later on. Aaron is going to be the one forging an idol, a molten calf for Israel. He's the one who, when finishing this idol, is going to stand up in front of all Israel and say, Behold your God who brought you out of Egypt. Talk about blowing it big time. And in that moment, God knows that Moses will continue to stand with the Lord. That's in Exodus 32, verse 4. Moses' need for a spokesman ends up causing him more heartache and grief than if he had, than if he had just followed the Lord in the first place. Kind of like kind of like Abraham and Ishmael. You remember the story of Abraham and Ishmael? Ishmael is his son. He's a teenager and God comes and says, Hey, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac and he's the one through whom I promise will come. And what does Abraham say? Oh, that it may be Ishmael. Please let Ishmael be the one through whom your promise comes. And God says, No, it's not going to be Ishmael. But because you want Ishmael to be great, I'll make him great. Twelve princes will come from him, and you know the story. The Ishmaelites caused all kinds of problems. Even to the present day, the Arab-Israeli conflict rages on. And Aaron and Moses, Moses was the man that God called, not Aaron. But God allows Aaron to come along. I, I think it encourages me to be a little careful with what I ask the Lord for. Especially when it's more than what he already has planned for me. God makes his leadership clear. By the way, he also says, take your staff, Moses. Not talking about his secretary and office crew. He says, take your staff, your rod. This symbolizes authority in the scripture. The shepherd's staff. The rod. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. In Psalm chapter 2 verse 9 says, You shall rule them with a rod of iron. The staff also depicts something else interesting. It depicts comfort. On the one hand, it is discipline. It is rule. It is authority. On the other, it is comfort. Psalm 23, 4, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. Same rod of discipline, authority, and rule is the rod of comfort for those who walk in submission to the Father's will. Verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. I think this is interesting. Um, Moses is 80 years old. And he goes to his father-in-law to ask permission to go back to Egypt. 
Hey, Dad, listen, uh, would it be okay if I took the car out tonight? <laughs> What's he doing here? He's 80 years old. At what point do you stop asking permission of your father-in-law to go somewhere? The deal is, and I think this gives us insight into Moses' heart. Moses does not need or desire power or authority. He's not into self-rule. He's not trying to be his own man. He doesn't have a problem being submitted, and I think this is why God chose him, because his heart was in the right place. He was, for all of the doubting and the struggle that he has, he was a man of humbleness and a man of submission. And that, I believe, is the reason God chose him to lead. Verse 19, Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Moses, the Lord says, guess what? You've outlived your enemies. So you can go back in safety now. And I think there's a principle here, a secret for dealing with those who are in opposition to you. The secret is this. Outlive your enemies. It's a good one. I mean, it works. Outlive your enemies. Outlive your critics. And I'm, I'm joking, but I'm serious here. The best way to silence the critics in your life is to keep doing what the Lord has called you to do. To outlive them in faithfulness. To outlive them in your behavior. To outlive them in following the Lord regardless of their criticism. Galatians 6 verses 8 and 9. The one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Galatians 6 9 is a great verse to have memorized. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't get tired of it. Don't back off of the things that God has called you to do. Regardless of criticism, regardless of possible naysayers around you, you follow the Lord and He says in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And I'm slowly figuring this out in my life. I'm learning this. The voice of the critic dies down and dies off. Eventually they tire of their attacks and the fruit of God becomes indisputable. And so it is not my concern, it is not my business to be busy at work silencing the critic. It's interesting, this whole political campaign that we've been watching. Bush slams Kerry, Kerry slams Bush, and the slamming goes back and forth. And what you watch, and it's interesting, and I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> Probably get in trouble for saying this, but Bill Clinton, for all of his shenanigans, is one of the smartest politicians that there have ever been in America. Why is that? Because he knows how to silence the critic. How does he do it? He just keeps doing his thing. When people all through the Clinton administration were attacking him, many times rightly so, he just didn't even answer. He just kept doing his thing. And I would watch this on the news and I was amazed at how it just kind of died off and I'd go, wait a minute, he hasn't answered the question yet. He just got away. Doesn't anybody else see this? And he would just keep doing his thing. And whether, again, you agree with him as a president or a leader or not, and I have my own opinions there that I'm not at liberty to share at this moment, whether you agree with him as a leader, I'll tell you what, he knew how to silence the critic. He just kept doing his thing. He just kept going forward. I can't believe it. When he's in that Bible study, Rick said, be like Bill Clinton. No, I didn't. <laughs> and it's not what I said. I'm saying that as you look, and I'll tell you what, the loser in the presidential race is always the one who spends more time on the defensive. 
Isn't it? Interesting. The one who stays on message tends to be the winner. And that's all we're talking about here in Outliving Our Critics. Stay on message. What is my message? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Stay on message. Don't let any other criticism or outside talk dissuade you from staying on message. The gospel of Jesus. Acts chapter 5 verse 38 tells us, If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found to be fighting against God. And a non-believer, a man by the name of Gamaliel, said that about the church in the first century. Hey, if it's not of God, it's going to fall apart. But if it is of God, careful, because you may be fighting against God if you go after him. And Gamaliel saying this to the Jewish council. The reality is, folks, if we stay on message, we don't have to respond to the attacks of the critic. We don't have to fight to stave off the naysayer. We just do what God has called us to do, and we don't lose heart in doing good. That's key. Verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons. Remember, he married Zipporah. And he had a son named Gershon. He had another son named um, Eliezer, who we'll see later on. But he took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Here again, God tells Moses for the second time, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it hard as stone. And because of that, he will eventually, well, he's going to go through quite a bit of trouble before he lets the people go. Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Paul said it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and listen to this, it's in the Bible, he hardens whom he desires. That doesn't sound fair. When we talked about this a bit before, let me talk about it a little more now. Why is it that God would harden a man's heart to literally remove his will? You know, Pharaoh has free will like anybody else. He was a human being just like you and me. And suddenly God says, I'm going to harden his heart so he has no choice. So he's going to act in the way I want him to act. Not there. It seems to go against the grain of free will as taught in the Bible. A couple of reasons why he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Number one, to, re- to reveal... God's right to rule over all Egypt. To reveal God's right to rule over all Egypt. Gang, this isn't just a Pharaoh problem. It's an Egyptian Egyptian problem. In fact, it's a world problem. When God goes head to head with Egypt, it is Egypt that he needs to get the attention of, not just Pharaoh. And we'll see, and I said this before, that the ten plagues, each one of them, the ten plagues are plagues against ten different gods that the Egyptians worship. God takes them on one by one, picking them off and showing the people of Egypt and by extension the world who the true God is. That's his purpose. It's not, you know, it's kind of like when Bush talked about Osama bin Laden and said, I'm not really concerned about Osama bin Laden. Of course he's concerned about Osama bin Laden. But Osama bin Laden is really, I mean, it's not the main focus of the war on terror. He's one guy. Yeah, we need to take them down, but it's all the other terrorists. It's the entire network. And God is saying, hey, I'm not real concerned about Pharaoh. 
I'll deal with him. But he's not the big picture here. All of Egypt needs to understand my right to rule as God. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, will tell us against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So God's speaking to a whole lot more than just this Pharaoh. Secondly, God hardens his heart to reveal his respect of man's free will. That may not make sense. But he hardens his heart to show us that he respects the free will that he has given to man. Fourteen times we will read about Pharaoh hardening his heart in the book of Exodus. The first seven times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's not until the last seven times that we see God is now the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh lays the groundwork, lays his direction, sets his way, and God says, All right, that's what you choose. I will respect that. As a matter of fact, I'll help you out. If you choose to disobey me, if you choose to have a hard heart against me, I will honor that because I honor your choice. God is a respecter of the heart. If we reject Him, He will honor it. And this brings to mind something else that's important to understand. And it's this whole idea of, I had a long conversation just this past week about the end times. (laughs) Surprise? And as I was talking with this person about it, the thing that came up was, and this is a person who who disagreed with the perspective that that I, I think is biblical, my opinion doesn't mean if you disagree with me that we can't fellowship in Jesus but I believe very strongly in the idea of just following the book of Revelation literally as you've heard me many times talk about that the rapture of the church happens following the rapture of the church is seven year tribulation at the end of the seven year tribulation Jesus comes back to rule and reign for a thousand years in that time called the millennium now in that very basic perspective the question was brought up how that doesn't seem fair what What about choice? Why not just wait? I mean, if that's what you really believe, that people will still have a choice during the seven-year tribulation, why not just wait and see what happens? Why believe in God now? Why not just live your life and then, boom, the rapture happened. Okay, I guess I better believe. Why not just wait? And that's a great question. But if you think it's hard to believe now, it will be next to impossible to believe during the tribulation. Now God is going to pull out all the stops for people who have rejected him to that point to believe in him. But it will be very difficult. How can you say that? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Flip over there quickly. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in the New Testament. I just, folks, I believe this is too important to skip on by. And it's something we need to understand. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This whole idea that God is a respecter of the heart, that God allows us our free choice, and that the idea that he hardens Pharaoh's heart is a part of that. Check this out, verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Then that lawless one, and he's speaking here about Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and will bring to an end by the, by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Verse 10, And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now listen to this. Verse 11, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence 
so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. God will delude. God will put a veil up. God will make it hard to believe in this time called the tribulation. Why would God do that? Because He is a respecter of our choice. He knew the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh made the choice seven times. He hardens his heart. All the way up to about the seventh or eighth plague, he hardens his heart, he hardens his heart, he hardens his heart. And finally God says, okay, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to do what you are already doing. You have set your path. You have made your choice. And God alone, knowing the heart of man, knows that Pharaoh was in a place that he would not return. And so he hardens his heart. The one thing God refuses to do, the one thing he refuses to take away from you, is your freedom to choose or reject him. But understand this. If you, if you reject him, it may be difficult ever to receive him. There will be a deluding influence. The other thing too, by the way, just about the whole rapture tribulation thing, is if you're thinking, well, I'll just wait till it happens, what if you die? <laughs> what if you happen to be in the airplane flown by a Christian pilot at the rapture? Not a good place to be. <laughs> Praise the Lord that during that seven year tribulation the book of Revelation tells us that thousands upon thousands, literally millions of people will come to a knowledge of saving faith in Jesus. And will be saved. It's unbelievable but true. Well that doesn't sound fair either. People get a second chance. Yeah, I did. Didn't you? Aren't we all people of second chance? Anyway, back to our study. I think it's interesting. Egyptians believe something about a hard heart as well. I read this in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It tells us, Egyptians of this day believed when a person died, their heart was weighed in the hall of judgment. And if it was full of sin, the person was judged. So they took a stone beetle scarab. You've seen some in the mummy movies and movies like that. They took a stone beetle scarab and they placed it on the heart of the dead person at burial. And this stone scarab was supposed to harden the heart. And in so doing, when it hardened the heart, it made it difficult for the gods at this time of judgment to be able to see what was really in the heart so the person would be saved. Isn't that interesting? It is the opposite of what the Bible teaches, that we are to soften our hearts and confess our sins so that we can be saved. But this beetle scarab was to harden the heart so that the gods couldn't see, and thus the person would find salvation. God does not work that way. Our good works don't save us. It's soft hearts and confession that does. And this is why, by the way, God calls us to choose Him today. Psalm 95, verse 7. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. He'll give us the freedom to do so, and once we've done so, may even help us along that path. But don't harden your heart before the Lord. Verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God's telling Moses ahead of time, This is what's going to happen. He's going to reject. He's going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart. And then I'm going to say, Let my firstborn go. And he's going to say no. And the last plague will be the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Which, by the way, the firstborn son in Egypt was huge. Extremely important in their culture, in their society. Israel, Israel here is a type of the true firstborn of God, Jesus. 
Israel being that forerunner. We understand that Jesus comes through Israel, but in this verse, he's a picture, or the people of Israel are a picture of Jesus. Israel is my son, God says, my firstborn. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Tells us when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, up until the coming of Jesus, this couldn't have been completely understood as prophetic. Out of Egypt I have called my son. But that's exactly what happened with Jesus as well. For the angel told Joseph and Mary at the time of Jesus' birth, Herod's after you, I want you out of here in a place of protection, go down to Egypt. And after Herod had died, the angel said, It's safe to come home now. And Jesus, God's son, came. Out of Egypt. From out of Egypt, I called my son. God tells Pharaoh, or he says, Tell Pharaoh I'm deadly serious about my firstborn. And by the way, there is only one thing God is more deadly serious about than his firstborn. And that's our sin. And we know that because his firstborn died for our sin. Pharaoh rejects the firstborn of God, seen here as Israel. But later, this is interesting, Israel rejects the firstborn of God, Jesus, to his death. But far different from the death of Egypt's firstborn, Jesus' death would mean life. And what's amazing to me through all this thinking about the firstborn, Israel will one day look on God's firstborn with new vision and understanding. Zechariah 12.10, a verse I've quoted quite a bit. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. By the way, speaking of sons, we now come to a bizarre circumstance that has to be understood in this story before we can move on, and before Moses can effectively lead the people out of their own bondage. Look at verse 24. It's one of those really weird verses in Scripture. Watch this. It came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Excuse me? Did I misread that? Let me read that again. It came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Alright. Are you telling me that after this whole burning bush experience and all this stuff, he should have just killed Moses right then? What's going on? Why does he want to kill Moses now? Understand this, that before Moses can pronounce judgment on the house of Pharaoh, he needs to deal with his own house. He's got to deal with his own family. He's got a problem, something that he has neglected. For all of this shepherding in the last 40 years, Moses has neglected his sons. How so? His own sons, Gershom and Eliezer, at this point in the story, stand in covenant disobedience, in covenant violation, because they have been spiritually neglected by their dad, Moses. And Father God is angry about it. You want to get, by the way, my ire up as a dad? You want to get me really angry? Flashing mad? Well, not flashing, it's probably not a good picture there. Hurt or neglect my kids. Do something against my kids and I'm going to get angry. And this is where God is. He is angry enough with Moses to kill him because Moses has neglected his kids. How has he done that? Listen to this. You remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, don't you? Genesis 17.10 This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of covenant between all of the people. And Moses was a Levite. Moses would have known 
Moses, who was raised by his mother, though he then went on to the palace of Egypt, would have known and would have been taught about circumcision. He knew this. And yet Gershom and Eliezer, at this moment, are uncircumcised boys. All of the Jews knew from Abraham forward that you are to circumcise the son on the eighth day. On that important day, we talked about this in the Genesis study, that that is the perfect time, by the way, for an infant boy to be circumcised physically and otherwise. It is the time in the birth of a child, eight days, on the eighth day, when there is the least amount of pain and the least amount of bleeding, and God chose that day to be the day of circumcision for a child. Moses knew this. Gershom and Eliezer were not circumcised. And so God sought to kill him. (laughs) Again, this is tough God stuff. And there's a lot of it in the book of Exodus. Trying to understand the mind of God. And the behavior and the actions of God. We can say this is not fair. I mean, at least tell Moses. Give him a chance. God did. God gave Moses 40 years to do right by his sons. And Moses had yet to do it. God gave Moses a burning bush spiritual experience. Called him as his deliverer to deliver the people of Israel. Wouldn't you think that maybe that might waken Moses to the need to be spiritual with his own family. To wake him up to his family responsibility. But obviously that hadn't awakened Moses And so here, and all we can understand about this verse is that Moses came under life-threatening attack by the Lord. Moses is dying. I don't know if God made him incredibly sick, but Moses understood, and his wife Zipporah understood that Moses was being killed by God. Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint knife. A flint is a knife. And cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. Actually, the word threw is just she touched his feet with it. And said to him, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. God let Moses alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Why? Because of the circumcision. Because of the circumcision. Here we see the problem. Zipporah knows that circumcision is the issue. She understands. And so she circumcises her son and makes the foreskin touch Moses' feet. And she's angry about it. And she's mad at Moses. She calls him a bridegroom of blood. She doesn't want this to happen. By the way, I personally think Zipporah is probably a good reason why it never had happened. Remember, she's a Midianite. The Midianites came of the line. They actually came down from Abraham as well. Abraham married after Sarah died a woman named Keturah. And Abraham and Keturah had a son named Midian. And Zipporah is of that offspring. But the Midianites were not under the covenant of Abraham. That was through Isaac and his line. And so circumcision was not something practiced practiced by the Midianites. And as these children are born to Moses and Zipporah, somebody did not want them circumcised. I think Zipporah didn't want it to happen. I think that's why she's so mad. She knows what needs to be done too, doesn't she, in verse 25. As she sees Moses dying, they both realize we've blown it. We have not done what the Lord wants us to do with our own family. And so she circumcises her son, but now she's angry. And a lot of biblical scholars think this is the point that Zipporah, whose name means Pharaoh, this is the point that she flew the coop. Because after this verse, you're not going to see her again until chapter 18 when Jethro brings her and Moses' boys back out to meet Moses. She doesn't go with him to Egypt. She doesn't go to help him lead the people of Israel out. She takes off. She's done. This is Moses. This is a real man. 
And we see and understand now, again, and I've said this before, we need to pull the flannel graphs off. We need to get these two-dimensional, sometimes even one-dimensional pictures of biblical characters out of our minds and recognize that these are people like us. That a man like Moses was no different than a man like Hank. If Hank was called to go lead the people of Israel out in a very similar situation, although Cindy's not a Midianite, so that's maybe a little different there. But if God called any one of us, and God has called us, guys, we are just like Moses. And life is not easy for Moses just because he happens to be a man of God. It's hard. And it costs him his relationship with his wife. Oh, man. That seems hard. Are you saying to me that I'm to follow the Lord even if it costs me my marriage? What I'm saying to you is that you follow the Lord no matter what. Does God want it to cost you your marriage? No. Which is part of the reason why the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But the bottom line is gain and I'll tell you what fathers and I get on fathers about this back Sunday we're going to spend some time on this story. But fathers we have a responsibility. And if there's not a father, mothers, you have the responsibility to do right by your family, to honor the Lord first. But Rick, you don't understand. What if my spouse is totally opposed to this? So was Zipporah. Moses understands. His spouse goes back to Midian, and he's left to make another decision. Do I go on and follow the Lord, or do I go home with my wife? And he follows the Lord. Sunday was really cool to me we had a baptism some of you saw Bob and Doris Robertson Bob and Doris I believe are around Moses age I'm not sure but to see them go into the water and be baptized was just awesome but what was even more awesome to me is as we came out of the water and we dried off and started walking up the hill Bob was talking to me and he said you know I was just hoping that maybe one of my grandkids would join me and I can't describe how I felt. On the one hand, it broke my heart to hear that because he wanted it so badly. On the other hand, it warmed my heart because here is a man, again, in his 80s who is concerned about leading his kids and concerned about doing what God has called him to do. That was cold water out there. Even for me in the little booties. (laughs) And he and his wife got out there and were baptized for themselves, for the Lord, but also for their families. We honor the Lord first. And gang, if we neglect our obedience to the Father, if we neglect our obedience to the Father, we cannot expect our children or anyone else to follow Him. If you want to have an influence, we talked a few minutes ago about speaking and God giving you the right words. Was it St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. That we live a life where we are following God regardless of of what others say. Second John verse 4 tells us, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. John says, man, I'm writing to this church. He says, I was so glad to see your children walking in the truth. That's my greatest joy in life, is to see my kids walking in truth. Not to see Corey as a star of the basketball team. It's not to see Hannah winning major awards with her cheerleading squad is to see them walking in the truth. That's the deal. That's my prayer and that's my hope. And biblical ministry, folks, begins with personal obedience at home. 
So Moses has neglected his kids, and as a descendant of Abraham, he bypassed his primary covenant symbol of his people and his God, but God again gives him a second chance, because God is the God of second chances. Verse 27, we'll finish up. Now Moses, Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And so Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. This is very cool. And the people believed. They believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then, then they bowed low and worshipped. When they understand that the Lord cared, they worshipped. When I realize that God is truly concerned about me, all I want to do is worship. Well, Moses is on his way. In the next section of Exodus, chapters 5 through 12, he will face both the dangers of Egypt and the disgruntled dismay of his own people. But don't worry, Moses will outlive his critics. Father, we thank you for this time of study tonight, and I pray that you will encourage us as you encourage Moses to follow you. Lord, as I do these studies, I, I oftentimes am looking for a theme. I didn't even see the theme until just tonight. As we were about halfway through, it began to become clear to me that the bottom line is you want us to follow you at all cost. That, Lord, regardless of what anybody in our lives say, be it a spouse, be it a family member, be it a friend or a loved one, that we are to follow you, to honor you first to go the way that you have called us to go. Understanding, Lord, yes, absolutely, that it is all within the love that you've called us to. That we're not to be backbiters and angry people. We're not to try and show other people up. But as we act in love, Father, we have to act with conviction. And I pray, Lord, as we have watched, you work Moses over a bit and get him to that place where he understands the importance of obedience the importance of truly following after you. I pray, Lord, you will burn that in our hearts. Give us conviction, Father, and hearts of obedience. And even, Father, when we ourselves feel tired or burnt or bitter, God, remove that from us. Refocus our eyes on Jesus and lead us home, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.